Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you on this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Laura Cordes. She is the Executive Director of the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence. Good morning to you. Good morning, Aaron. Your slogan is Support, Advocate, and Prevent. Tell us about the work you do. Well, we're the coalition of non-community-based sexual assault crisis service programs in Connecticut. Uh, We have been an organization working to end sexual violence and to center the needs of survivors, both child, adolescent, and adult survivors of sexual violence for over 36 years. And when you say support, advocate, prevent, um, that is what we do. So 24-7 crisis hotlines, counseling and advocacy for survivors, and accompaniment to police stations, courts, uh, hospitals, um, working in the community to educate folks, not just about uh, what to do if uh, someone is assaulted in your life or you are a victim of sexual assault, but what we can do as communities uh, to create respectful, supportive environments that don't tolerate the behaviors that lead to sexual violence. And then advocacy, certainly for survivors, but on the public policy front as well, whether it's at the Capitol or in a school district or with a state agency, we want to improve the response to sexual assault survivors we believe deserve our compassion and support. So your organization could very well be the first point of contact from someone who experiences sexual violence. Absolutely. Um, Certainly uh, every year we take uh, several thousand uh, phone calls uh, on our hotlines, and sometimes those are uh, from survivors themselves um, in the hours or days after a sexual assault who are uh, seeking help. Sometimes we're the first person they uh, disclose to. So um, we're there to help people explore their options, uh, make sure um, they have uh, safety plans if needed, and that they get the care that they deserve. How has your work changed since the Me Too movement? It's a great question, um, and it's still evolving. Um, Our nation is reckoning um, with uh, epidemic levels of sexual violence. And in the 20 years that I've been doing this work, Um, I am both more hopeful and uh, more frustrated and outraged than um, I have ever been. Um, The Me Too movement certainly laid bare for millions of Americans that uh, women and girls and certainly some men and boys um, experience harassment, abuse, assault at every age and stage of their lives and acutely by the hands at people or excuse me, by the hands of people they know and trust. So I think we're most of us were raised to think that sexual violence is perpetrated by strangers 
or psychopaths or, um, you know, uh, pedophiles. And when the reality is uh, well over 80 percent of sexual assault victims are assaulted by someone they knew or trusted, a family member, a colleague, uh, a friend, uh, someone in their in their neighborhood um, and offenders utilize the relationship, uh, the level of trust to manipulate, coerce, and harm, and then many times silence uh, survivors. Sexual violence is probably, you know, one of the most personal things anyone will have to endure. How do you make that person feel safe and reassure them that you are there to help and get them the assistance that they need? No two survivors are alike, uh, but what we offer and what many survivors uh, need in the aftermath is just someone first and foremost to believe them. Um, Certainly the conversation um, and the Kavanaugh hearings uh, illustrated that despite decades of work and research, certainly funded by the state and government um, themselves that show the impact of trauma and how uh, common it is for victims uh, to fear stepping forward. You know, survivors know that if they do disclose to a friend or even report to the police, that there's a large chance that they will not be believed or that they somehow will be shamed or blamed or held responsible uh, for the behavior of someone else. As things unfolded before the Senate Judiciary Committee, as now Justice Kavanaugh was was going through his hearings. How did that affect your organization? Did you see an increase in calls? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we joined millions of Americans over the last three weeks in uh, feeling like disheartened um, would be a light word, but uh, crushingly disappointed um, at the outcomes of the nomination process, um, certainly because of the lack of thorough investigation. Um, that the Senate Judiciary Committee um, and the president chose uh, not to do, but moreover the treatment of the brave women who came forward, Dr. Blasey Ford, certainly Deborah Ramirez and Julie Swetnick, um, and how they were disparaged, dismissed, disbelieved, and mocked by powerful uh, individuals, including the president himself. So impacted, certainly we saw an increase in hotline calls, and that has not stopped. Um, Our numbers, just in terms of the people that we support and serve every year in Connecticut, um, have um, increased uh, well over 20% in the last few years. We've seen our hotline numbers uh, jump as well. Um, I know anecdotally, uh, just in the last few weeks, certainly up over 25%. What sort of training do the people answering those calls have to provide assistance? Mm -hmm. The coalition sets standards and supports uh, nine community-based sexual assault crisis service programs, and all of our community-based programs have certified sexual assault crisis counselors and advocates. They go through a minimum of training of 40 hours, um, and they um, also specialize in working with children, uh, adolescents, and adults. Uh, We are one of two states in the country that has a bilingual Spanish-speaking hotline as well. Um, And maybe this is a good time for me to let folks know they can find information about a community-based sexual assault crisis service program in their uh, community by going to endsexualviolencect.org. And then I want to give our hotline numbers. Um, In English, that's 1-888-999-5. 
1-800-273-5545. And in Spanish, um, many, we have many bilingual uh, speakers in Connecticut, 1-888-568-8332. So we have bilingual Spanish-speaking culturally appropriate advocates at each of our member programs as well. Someone may not be in the position to immediately make that phone call. What's the best advice you have for remaining safe if if they're still in an active situation? A lot of victims of sexual assault might be fearful of repercussions from the offender, um, their family members or friends if they disclose. And I, I think your question's a good one. So if someone hasn't disclosed to us, that they're a survivor. If we're thinking one in four girls, one in six boys will be sexually assaulted before the age of 18. That's a lot of people with sexual abuse histories. It impacts them in uh, numerous ways. And someone disclosing to you is really a privilege. So believing, listening, most survivors don't want you to, uh, or expect you rather to solve the problem they are looking for compassion, support, someone that's not going to question, say, are you sure? Uh, why were you out alone? Um, to reinf- uh, But to reinforce and say, you know what? I'm sorry that happened to you. That wasn't your fault. You deserve safety and support. And you know what? There are our folks, free and confidential services. All of our hotlines, all of our advocates have privileged communication in our state. And folks are here for you. And you deserve uh, support and healing. You noted you've seen an uptick in, in calls since the uh, the allegations against now Justice Kavanaugh unfolded. Is it a volume that you've struggled to respond to? Well, we're fortunate that we have not only staff but volunteers. But thinking about our our movement, many of us are survivors our, ourselves. So we're we're uh, holding space for survivors and each other, and uh, we're we welcome folks to call, and we welcome the community to uh, think critically about the role that they can play. And so it's not only being there for survivors, but what would it be like for folks to think more about what they could do in their community, uh, how they could talk not only to their daughters uh, that we hear a lot about. Uh, people say, well, I'm, I always talk to my daughter. I always think about her safety. And I'm so glad that parents do that. I also want parents to think about talking to their sons. Um, most boys, most men um, do not perpetrate a bully or uh, commit acts of sexual assault. Um, but most perpetrators are men um, and young boys. So what we're looking at is the ability to think about how we prevent these crimes um, and these harms um, before anybody would choose to do that. And that means talking uh, to men, talking to men, and men talking to uh, younger men and boys about respect, empathy, bodily autonomy, and, and consent at an early age. Can you talk about the the evolution of how colleges in, in particular respond to allegations of sexual violence? Because it seems often that is where we learn things that we're going to carry with us for the rest of our lives and how the respect starts there and sure. earlier. Well, I, let's go earlier. So um, 
Connecticut has actually made great strides in thinking um, and acting um, in our General Assembly, uh, taking steps over the last six, seven years to make sure that we have prevention, education, and training programs K through 12. So uh, the fall, actually two years ago, October 1 of 2016, all school districts K through 12 are required to provide sexual assault awareness and prevention. Again, not just what to do if, but how, what are the lessons that are age appropriate um, that young people need to know? And so our school districts, it's aspirational, but many of our school districts are starting to um, institute those lessons um, by grade. And then our College campuses, both in 2012, 2014, 2016, the Alliance worked with uh, lawmakers in Connecticut to advance some of the strongest uh, campus sexual assault laws in the country. And what those laws do now and require is that there's training, not only for incoming students, uh, but uh, for staff and faculty, and that, the, again, that we're looking not only at how we respond and how we define sexual assault and harassment and abuse, but what we can do to prevent it. So we've seen um, both through um, our advocacy and through a really amazing network of campus staff and administrators, something called the Connecticut College Consortium Against Sexual Violence that uh, the Alliance has organized for over 20 years. Those uh, folks working together have advanced these best practices. So campuses have MOUs or Memos of Understanding with rape crisis centers, domestic violence programs. They're also engaged in the training and they are required to make sure that students, should they disclose, are given follow federal law, which we are a little bit worried about what might of rollbacks might happen under this administration, um, but that students are given um, the resources and support um, they need and full uh, understanding of what the process is like to go through uh, the campus judicial process or to go to the police or to do both. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Laura Cordes. She is executive director of the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence. In terms of other areas of public policy, what do we do well in Connecticut and where can we do better? Well, we've made great strides in addressing uh, previously untested sexual assault evidence collection kits. Um, To take a big step back, um, and we're talking about how it is the uh, multiple barriers that victims face in coming forward, uh, both um, fears from the offender or uh, worry about not being believed. So many people in our culture say, well, why didn't she report? I can tell you from um, the folks on the front line um, and survivors that I've spoken to, we expect victims to come forward, but we have to be there for them when they do. And if we're not able to investigate, if we lose track of sexual assault evidence collection kits, if we um, are hostile in an investigation or we don't have services and supports that folks need or if our courts are too backlogged and we can't move a case forward, it's no wonder that folks would worry about coming forward. So everything that we can do within our systems to make sure that victims have compassion and support and uh, a non-judgmental response and that our systems are 
least working um, to where evidence will be uh, collected. We'll be able to um, enter DNA samples from that evidence into um, CODIS or DNA databases. Um, that's where we've taken big steps forward in our state. Just on that issue alone, we've identified over 2,000 uh, sexual assault evidence collection kits, some that were partially tested, so didn't have the sample, the DNA sample set to the database, um, and then some that were never sent to the lab for testing. The good news is that we have great collaboration with the police, with prosecutors, uh, with the great folks um, at the Division of Scientific Services. That's the one crime lab we have in the state, and certainly victim advocates. We've all been working together um, with, along with uh, Governor Malloy, who created the sexual assault kit working group to look at these kits, make sure we had funding to get them tested. And the good news is as of last month, we've tested over half of the kits we identified um, and were able to enter that uh, DNA sample into database, uh, get some um, what we'd call at this point a hit, um, and then go back and start to identify victims that maybe thought nobody cared what happened to them or that uh, they expected uh, that nobody was going to investigate. So we're just starting that victim notification uh, process now and making connections between um, an assault that may have happened uh, well over a decade ago and someone uh, that has been matched into uh, the uh, state DNA database. What is left to be done? I'm thinking about maybe the the next legislative session, you, you're you going to have a new administration, a new legislature. I know last year there was talk of maybe changing the statutes of, of limitations on, on some crimes. There's a lot of work to be done, but we're going back um, to make sure that we uh, eliminate the statute of limitations um, for sexual assault felony crimes in our state. Uh, Connecticut, I think folks would be surprised to know that we are well behind the ma overwhelming majority of states, 26 of whom um, have removed the statute of limitations on uh, rape cases. And in Connecticut, it's just five years. So for everything that uh, folks have been learning, but that advocates have known for years, it takes years uh, to heal from a sexual assault. It, feel, it takes, can take years to feel safe to come forward. Um, certainly, we know that uh, offenders uh, make threats. Um, and when children are, and young, I should say young folks, um, are, and adolescents are abused, um, they may not identify what happened to them as abuse. And there are some crimes that you, uh, sexual assault crimes, that you may have till your 48th birthday. But we heard testimony last year from someone, um, a man, who didn't feel like he could tell somebody until he was 50 two years after the statute of limitations ran out for him. Uh, victims deserve a chance at justice and healing through the criminal justice process, and it's also a matter of public safety. Uh, offenders go on to uh, re-offend, and if we have the chance um, to have evidence um, and to uh, charge and successfully prosecute, um, that's good news not only for the victim who's seeking justice, but for the community at large. Tell us about where the funding comes from for the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence. And like so many other agencies, are you being forced to do more with less? Yeah. The, the more the more with less is, is certainly always uh, the case, but we're um, fortunate to have uh, funding that we uh, have fought for for years um, and worked to um, maintain through the state. 
and through the federal government. We advocated for something called the Violence Against Women Act. Um, it's over 25 years old. It's up for reauthorization. But those have been life-saving dollars uh, to support uh, frontline victim advocates and services for survivors, um, as well as uh, support for training, trauma-informed interviewing for police officers, um, the ability to have victim advocates on intensive sex offender uh, probation and parole units throughout our state. But it's help transform the criminal justice system to um, improve their response uh, to sexual assault uh, victims as well. And those are dollars that we're having to fight for and secure every year. Increasingly, um, we um, look for and ask for the public uh, to support us. And I don't know if I can make that ask, but they could certainly go to nsexualviolencect.org and make a donation. Um, that makes all the difference, allows us to advocate um, for survivors year in and year out um, and support them um, when they need us the most. For the people who answer your hotlines, how do you make sure they're okay? I'm guessing that after getting call after call from survivors, that can take a toll. Yeah, we have to advocate for self-care. Um, and, you know, uh, my team uh, two weeks from now is uh, going to an orchard in Glastonbury um, instead of our staff meeting. Um, but we have to uh, carve out time uh, for ourselves. And that means that we have to actually uh, talk to each other about doing that. Um, we have at one of our uh, rape crisis programs, um, Lily, who is a golden retriever um, and a wonderful therapy dog um, that is shared. Um, and we wish we had more of Lily's in the state, um, but taking time out uh, for ourselves. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a great question and one that I want to remind your audience about that. Um, and thank you for thinking about our staff and our volunteers, but the self-care that's needed right now for survivors who have many of whom have been re-triggered, re-traumatized uh, through the course of uh, the Me Too conversation, certainly the Kavanaugh hearings, um, you know, I, we have a message for them that um, they deserve uh, support and healing. And it's okay to take some time for yourself, to turn off the news, uh, to walk away. And I know that's not quite what our culture demands of us, um, but um, that's okay, um, especially right now. Let's take another moment to get those hotline numbers out there and remind us again of what sort of resources are available to survivors, because it's really a spectrum. Sure. You know, even if it happened a long time ago, even if you never told someone, um, even if you knew the person who harmed you, um, we're here for you. Our numbers in English and in Spanish, I'll go with the English hotline first, 1-888-999-5545. In Spanish, 1-888-568-8332. You can talk anonymously on this hotline. Um, you can set up an appointment for individual short-term counseling and advocacy um, you could also come and uh, be part of a support group. And important to note that this hotline is not just for survivors, but for those who are friends and family members and supporters. It's hard uh, to know exactly what to say um, when someone you love has been harmed. So we're here for you as well. Um, we can help you navigate uh, supporting someone. And we also have support groups 
um, and sessions for folks that can come into the office as well who are what we call a secondary survivor. Will the people who answer that hotline also be able to make the connection with law enforcement if that's something? So the advocacy and accompaniment we provide um, is uh, varies from people wanting to say, I'm, I'd like to tell my partner about what happened to me, or I'd like to report this to my boss about what happened that my colleague uh, did to me, or I'd like to go to the police. Could you walk me through what that would look like? Um, certainly many of our programs have relationships with the uh, police departments um, in their service area, um, but we provide support and accompaniment. Um, and especially we were talking about sexual assault evidence collection kits. That's an intensive process. Uh, we respond to well over 800 hospital calls every year to support uh, survivors who uh, get immediate health care as well as have uh, a forensic exam after the assault. Um, but we can also, uh, we're also there to support people who may want to tell an institution uh, on their college campus, for example. She is Laura Cordes, Executive Director of the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.